Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Center for the Study of World Religions. Many of you are familiar faces here, and you're always welcome back. If you were here for the first time, a special welcome to um, the Center and to this book event tonight. My name is Frank Clooney. I'm the director of the Center, and happy to host our gathering tonight. This series is one of the, the most um, enjoyable things for me, and certainly informative things we do at the Center inviting new uh, faculty when they have a new book published to present their book, talk about how they came to write the book, and then uh, conversation with discussants of the book, uh, highlighting some of the key points in the book, maybe raising a few questions, and then some discussion with all of you who've come. Um, we have maybe five or six or seven of these book events a year. Uh, Professor Janik Yatso's book we'll be discussing in March, and we may have one more um, in April before the semester is over. But tonight, um, we're very happy to have Giovanni Bazzana's book, uh, Kingdom of Bureaucracy, Village Scribes and Political Theology in the Sayings Gospel Q. And our format is pretty standard for these events. Uh, I'll do my little introduction, and then uh, Giovanni will speak about how he came to write the book, uh, maybe some of the key points that excited him in taking up the project, if he wants to be confessional, he can talk about the hard parts and the easy parts of completing this project. Just to hear, because I think it's always fascinating about how we come to, to write the books that we write. And then we have two respondents. I'll introduce them at the proper time. Uh, Larry Wills from Episcopal Divinity School, Shia Cohen from our own Harvard faculty. And then they will respond, and then Giovanni has a chance to um, take up any particular points or issues they raise. And then they'll come up and sit the three in the front here and have a conversation with all of you. And um, our only kind of fast final point is we'll be done by 7. Um, and depending on how the conversation goes, we might go right up to 6.59 or take a few minutes earlier than that. These are meant to be informal discussions. And therefore, if your um, plate is empty or your glass is empty as we talk, don't hesitate to go over and, and take something more because we like it to be a casual context. So let me do the honor first of introducing Giovanni Bazzana, our uh, author tonight. He has a Lauria degree in classics from the university in Milan with a dissertation on the theme Mysterium Regni, the presence of the life-giving Messiah at the origins of the gospel traditions. His PhD in religious studies is from the International School in Modena, and there his dissertation is on the theme Veris Propheta, authority and succession in ancient Jewish Christianity. He's held a number of uh, academic positions before joining us here at Harvard. In 2006, uh, he was for a time at the University of Toronto. 2007-8 was University of Notre Dame. And then uh, came here to Harvard in 2009 and is now an associate professor of New Testament here on the Divinity School faculty. As I think all of you know, his main interests deal with the synoptic gospels and apocalyptic literature. But in the last decade, his work has become increasingly focused on papyrology and the interplay between this discipline and New Testament studies, in particular with respect to the potential broadening of the scope of historical analysis in comparison to the wider Jewish and Greco-Roman context. Um, papyrology, for those like myself who didn't know much about it before recently, offers a wide array of still relatively untapped venues of research stretching from the more traditional textual critical studies to the study of ancient Christian books as evidence for the social 
cultural practices of writing and reading sacred text and their commentaries. So it opens up a vast world to very technical kinds of study. Uh, Professor Bazana is a widely published author. Just to mention a few of the highlights, uh, some key articles. 2009, Early Christian Missionaries as Physicians, Healing and Its Cultural Value in the Greco-Roman Context. 2010, Cucurbita Super Capet Done, Translation in Theology in the Old Latin Tradition. 2011, Basileia and Debt Relief, The Debt's Forgiveness of the Lord in the Lord's Prayer in Light of Documentary Papyri. And 2012, Neo-Marxism, Language Ideology in the New Testament. Uh, he's currently uh, working on a number of projects, a volume on Q for the papyrological series on the New Testament, published in Germany somewhere. Um, his future research projects include the study of ancient writing on magic and witchcraft as sociocultural practices, legal discourses, ideological construals, and the building of a critical theory of biblical translation with attention to its theoretical and practical implications. He has a number of um, books already um, published, including the one we discussed tonight. Uh, 2003, uh, I'll just do this in English to spare you my Italian, Authority and Succession, Prophetic Figures in the Text of Ancient Jewish Christianity. He's preparing a commentary on parallel sections of Matthew and Luke in the papyrological commentary series of the New Testament that de Gruyter publishes. Uh, he has a forthcoming book, which maybe we can discuss next year, Christ and Beelzebul, Anthropological Insights on Spirit Possession and Exorcism in Early Christ, Christ Groups. And of course tonight, and I'll pass this around in a moment so anyone who's not seen it can take a look, we have his book, Kingdom of Bureaucracy, The Political Theology of Village Scribes in the Sayings Gospel Q. So let us welcome Professor Bazana. So good evening. Um, first of all, thanks Frank for the introduction and for the invitation to speak about this. Um, and also thank you all for coming. Um, and thanks for the, to the two respondents. This is kind of a captatio benevolentiae, so you'll be not too harsh with me, hopefully. Uh, uh, so I, uh, I'll do what I'm asked to, so talk a little bit how I came to write this book, um, which is a long story, but let's make it short. Um, it's, uh, it's a book that in, in a certain sense has two uh, souls in a single body. Um, it's, uh, it's, on one hand, is the product of what Frank was mentioning before, my long-standing interest in the relationship between papyrology and uh, uh, the New Testament, or early Christian writings, actually, in general. Um, I think this is, this is a very broad um, area of interest, because like Frank was mentioning, um, papyri convey a lot of different information about the ancient world. Um, in this particular project, I, you know, the, the stimulus came from my interest in um, uh, in probing or maybe confirming or not at the time when I started a certain ideas. It's certain idea that was put around by some scholars about the composition of this um, Q source, which is you know the hypothetical source that was probably used 
uh, by uh, Matthew and Luke in composing their, their two Gospels. So um, some scholars in recent decades have suggested that this uh, text, this hypothetical text Q, was the product of circles of village scribes, so village bureaucrats, village administrators in Galilee in the central decades of the first century CE. Um, so that, you know, that was put forth and really not proved in, in any substantial way. So the first part of this book is actually devoted to an attempt to substantiate this hypothesis with arguments uh, that are, there are uh, in part uh, philological in nature. So I, there's where I use the papyrological materials because, you know, papyri from Egypt has really, are really the sole source from which we actually know something about village administrators in antiquity. Um, and because otherwise, this is the nature of the papyrological record that has survived basically all in Egypt and otherwise has been, you know, wiped out by, um, you know, the condition, the unfavorable condition of, uh, uh, of, of, of the weather, or the humidity in, in other places around the Mediterranean. So one of the big assumptions behind this book is that, you know, one can use the um, Egyptian documentation to uh, imagine what would have been the situation in Galilee in the first century C. So this is, this is kind of something that we probably can discuss later on, but this is, this is a starting point. So the first part of the book, like I said, is devoted to mostly theological arguments, some historical argument about the possibility that actually in Galilee there was a sector of the society composed by these administrators uh, living in villages, so uh, belonging to usually lower, middle class, who could, you know, know enough Greek to be able to compose this source cue that then was used by Matthew and Luke. Um, the second part of the book uh, actually stems from uh, another interest that I have developed more recently, I have to say, but, uh, and, and, it's, and it's not so much historical or theological interest, but it's an interest in um, the, it's an, and it's an interest spurred, first of all, by the, thinking of an Italian philosopher that is widely read in, uh, in North America to uh, Giorgio Agamben. And in recent years, he has been working and writing a lot uh, on, the, uh, on, on, on rethinking, with the aim of rethinking uh, the notion of political theology, uh, among other things that he has been doing. Um, and he has put forward this uh, interesting and in many ways very controversial and rightly so, idea that uh, alongside the classic, you know, Schmittian, Petersonian um, type of political theology in which, uh, you know, a kind of autocratic uh, political government corresponds to a similarly autocratic uh, uh, sovereignty of God over the cosmos. Um, so uh, Agamben thinks that there existed an alternative paradigm that he calls economic theology, uh, where economic is not so much uh, to be understood in the sense in which we treat this uh, word in our contemporary usage, but is economic in the sense of the ancient uh, notion of oikonomia in terms of the organization, not only of households, which is you know, the origin of the term oikonomia, but also of states. 
Um, and so in antiquity, actually, oikonomia is used uh, a lot, for instance, again, in documentary papyri to indicate the administration of a kingdom or uh, of a state. Uh, so uh, this economic theology for uh, Agamben is based on, on a different paradigm than the one I mentioned before, and a paradigm in which uh, the sovereign or God, as far as the cosmos is concerned, the sovereign is idle, doesn't, doesn't act, doesn't do anything. And actually the machine of the cosmos is you know, uh, governed by a bureaucracy, which is in this case is usually an angelic or a, a bureaucracy composed of supernatural agents. Um, this you know, has a reflection and is a classic political theological paradigm. So this kind of cosmological structure is mirrored in uh, political structures so that there is, there is a king or sovereign who doesn't act and uh, instead a bureaucracy carries on uh, the work of, of the king in terms of you know, caring for the welfare of sub subjects and, and doing other things like that. Um, so you know, obviously Agamben works with this paradigm and it traces a kind of enormous trajectory that goes from antiquity to contemporary issues and that's what's exciting about Agamben but it's also what irritates people. Um, Particular historians, so uh, I, I, I found this this para, this 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 kind of picture representation of of Agamben very interesting because you know also I would say um, personal issues. I mean, it, it is it is a vision that is uh, profoundly um, embedded and radicated in uh, rooted in 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 the Italian situation, the European situation, where you know there is so much. Uh, that has that, that brings people to reflect, to be critical, and actually to be discontent profoundly about you know the function of states, nation states, and bureaucracies, and you know the lack, uh, the lack, uh, the, the failure of uh, liberal democracies to to bring particip democratic participation really into into the government and so forth. So so all of these are are are, are things that you know are are clearly mirrored in in Agamben's work and are very interesting. So but that, I, I was thinking about that and, and, and the economic theology paradigm seemed to me an apt way to look at a text like Q and also thinking about uh, this early Christian text might have somehow been in, in the back of, 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 of our mind and, in, and, and even influential beyond their contextual historical situation. Um, and I have to say that you know this is kind of a lens through which I Notice interesting phenomena, interesting things going on, and these are uh, those that I discuss in the second part of the book. Like I said, the first part is more a philological, historical argument. The second part is instead focused on the kingdom of God, the Basileia to Theu, which is this notion, there's this concept, if you want, that um, appears you know, widely in all the Gospels traditions, so much so that you know, it's kind of considered one of the few things that everyone agrees uh, can go back to the historical Jesus. Obviously, everyone agrees about this going back to the historical Jesus, and no one knows what really Jesus meant when he used this term. So, uh, which is the which is the problem that is encountered in historical Jesus quest, generally speaking. Um, in particular, these Basileia appears in Q in very in the Q passages that we can reconstruct in very odd ways. So, Q is a text in which. Um, Despite Q being certainly a Jewish text and a text that you know is clearly embedded in the Jewish tradition, 
Uh, Q doesn't have any passage in which there is the typical, if you want, Jewish scriptural uh, affirmation that God is king. Um, and this is kind of striking in itself, as obviously, you know, it's relatively, uh, it's, it's relatively shocking because one could say, you know, we really don't know the extent of Q, we reconstruct only a, a small part of it. So it's not, it's not a definite argument, but it's interesting nevertheless. At the same time, the Basileia to Theu, which appears a lot, you know, relatively to the length of Q, which is, you know, limited, uh, the Basileia to Theu occurs many times and always in, in, in a appears and acts even in very strange ways. First of all, acts, despite being an abstract concept, is the Basileia. So it's, it's usually translated as kingdom, which is not a good translation. You know, probably better is rule or sovereignty. But anyway, it's an abstract notion. So and instead, you know, in some of the Q passages, it acts. It has an agency. Or sometimes even these basileia seem to be brought about by the activity of Jesus' disciples. So they, they by their own acting, these human beings bring about this, you know, basileia to theo. So there I think there is an interesting um, place in which to look and think about uh, you know, how these people conceptualize, the people who put together the text conceptualize the, re the relationship between God and the world, the cosmos, and, and God and human beings and humankind, uh, which, is, which is what I do, like I said, in the second, uh, uh, in the second part of the book. And obviously, the, the, the two sections, the two halves are actually integrated. So I, my, my tentative argument is to say that this, um, this kind of picture of their, this economic theology is used about the Basileia to Theu in Q because you know this is exactly the product of these administrative groups who are used to think in this term, to think about the cosmos as a bureaucratic machine. Uh, obviously, this is a consequence. Of, this is the last thing I want to say because I'm probably running out of time. Um, um, the, the, this, this is a consequence, obviously, I think, and now we, as you know, exegetes and, and scholars of New Testament of the New Testament, we approach the issue of the of the kingdom of God of the Basileia to Theu. You know, there is a there is a, there is a strong sense in in the field uh, in which this is kind of represented as an utopian uh, concept or, or or even an ideal concept, which is heavily romanticized, I would say. Uh, in being democratic, in being egalitarian, and this is, you know, this is good in, in as much as you know it serves some purposes for, um, uh, for, for for using constructively the texts we have. On the other hand, we all, we you know as as scholars, it's it's good to be wary of that in as much as it's good to look at the origins and and, and how this this these concepts have come to be, and, and I think in this sense. Uh, Thinking in these terms, in terms of the economic theology about the kingdom of God, it it it, it can be you know nuanced the way in which we approach this. I, I I would say that you know this is reflected in the title of the book. You know, this kingdom of bureaucracy is chosen you know to kind of bring together these two uh, notions that we are not, we are using to we are used to consider one positive because we expect the kingdom of God. It's a good thing. But bureaucracy is very bad for everyone, uh, and 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 so there the, 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 there is this this idea of nuancing the position, and obviously, in you know in in in, in longer in, in in broader terms to think also about uh, 
even when we read these texts and we try to read them and make it work in an anti-imperialist, um, democratic way, how much our own anti-imperialism sometimes, you know, is conflicting with our own location as intellectuals or people who lives in the West and, you know, in, in a sense benefit from our embeddedness in this situation. Uh, so, again, thanks for everyone for coming and I'll see you later. I'm happy to introduce the first of our discussants tonight, Shia Cohen, well known to most of us in the room here. Uh, Shia Cohen is the Litauer Professor of Hebrew Literature and Philosophy in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations here at the University. Uh, Professor Cohen began his career at the Jewish Theological Seminary, where he was ordained, and for many years he was the Dean of the Graduate School and Schenkman Professor of Jewish History. Uh, before, though, before coming to Harvard in 2001, he was for 10 years the Samuel Ungerleiter Professor of Judaic Studies and Professor of Religious Studies at Brown University. Uh, Shia Cohen's work um, covers many topics, but um, at a focus of it perhaps is the boundary between Jews and Gentiles and between Judaism and its surrounding cultures. Uh, to put some of the questions that I discovered, uh, what makes a Jew a Jew? What makes a non-Jew a non-Jew? Can a non-Jew become a Jew or a Jew become a non-Jew? We should have you back to talk about these issues. How does the Jewish boundary between Jew and non-Jew compare with the Jewish boundary between male Jew and female Jew? Uh, Professor Cohen has published widely and prolifically, just to mention a couple of things. Uh, there's the well-known book from two, 1987, which has gone through a number of editions, From the Maccabees to the Mishnah which is used as a textbook in colleges and adult education, and also from 1999, The Beginnings of Jewishness, which has been widely discussed in scholarly circles and I think also in the wider community. And uh, just one other work I'll mention in 2005, published a very interesting book, Why Aren't Jewish Women Circumcised? A Study of Circumcision and Gender in Judaism. So we have a wonderful discussion here, and I'm looking forward to hearing Shia Cohen. So welcome, Shia. Okay, so I catch anybody looking and you're in trouble, right? Uh, so I'd like to begin. First of all, I'm delighted to be here. I'd like to th uh, salute Giovanni on the publication of his book. We look forward to many future works from your pen. So congratulations to you. Uh, I am not a student of the New Testament in particular or uh, an expert in Q and such things. So you'll forgive me if I range off in the directions that I want to go. But the first thing I need to say is that what's a wonderfully easy book to read. It's a wonderful, it's, it bears as learning lightly. Uh, even if you don't know any Greek, everything is translated. It's well written, it's well argued, it's clear, it's fun to read. Uh, I, I enjoyed the experience very much and I, I learned a great deal from it and I encourage you all to, at your leisure, to have a, have a look at it. Giovanni explains in the opening pages what Q is and uh, explains why modern scholars believe in it. Since I'm not a student of the New Testament, you can forgive me if I'm not quite ready to surrender uh, to, to, to the Q uh, juggernaut. So I'd like to spend a few minutes talking about that. Um, Giovanni is correct when he says the scholarship has to be able to move forward 
right? You can't have to go back to the beginning every single time. At some point, you simply have to assume we've gone from A to K, and now it's time to move on to L, right? Except I, I, I'm outside this discipline, so I'm going to go back to A, right? Uh, that, that still bothers me. And Giovanni and I have discussed this uh, several, several, uh, several times. So here we go. We scholars, especially if we are 19th century Germans, we like to posit lost sources. Why do we like to posit lost sources? I'm really not quite sure. <laughs> Basically, it moves the question from the seen to the unseen from the text that lies before us to a text that does not lie before us. So in a sense, all these lost source theories simply give us the illusion of solving something, because we're just pushing everything back one step. The theory also gives us something to do. We have exhausted ourselves studying texts that we do have, <laughs> usually without achieving consensus. So instead, we turn to the text that we don't have. Thus to a turn area where I think I do know something. We all agree that the book of Genesis opens with two creation accounts, one P and one J. We all agree the narrator has combined two different accounts of the flood story under Noah, so that our current text is a composite of, once again, P and J. Can we, once we have posited these sources, confidently reconstruct the contours of these sources? For example, do we know where P starts and where P stops? Does P have a narrative or does P not have a narrative? Does J have laws or J not have laws? Where exactly does J stop? These are questions about the contours of these sources, the setting of these sources, the date of these sources, the transmission of these sources from their composition to their incorporation in the Torah text. Trace it, and can we trace the Torah text from its inception until the text as we have it today? In other words, by positing law sources, we have a whole industry we have, of questions that we can, now, we can now pursue that were otherwise close to us. Many scholars have tried to answer these questions, but there is no consensus on these questions, so much so that cutting-edge biblical scholarship in Europe has moved away from positing and reconstructing lost documents, JPD, focusing instead on amorphous traditions. So we turn now instead to Q. The Q people have not yet reached that conclusion. They are, <laughs> they are still confident that there is a thing called Q, which can be reconstructed. As far as I could see, the argument has a series of four steps. And I'll use the metaphor of a train. So the first stop on this Q train. We posit a lost saying source used by Matthew and Luke to supplement Mark. First stop. Second station. We believe that the source can be reconstructed, i.e. we assume that there is a source. And then step two, well, we can reconstruct the source. That is, we do not believe that Matthew and Luke have so disfigured the source that its contours and wordings have been irretrievably lost. The argument for that is very often Matthew and Luke have exactly the same wording. So that actually is a, I don't know if it's compelling, but at least it's a solid, it's a solid argument. So the source exists. We, have, we can reconstruct and have access to it. Station three on this train. We believe that the social location of the document can be described. Uh, in this case, Giovanni, following Kloppenburg and Arnal, argues that the setting is not itinerant, radical, egalitarian, libertarian preachers, uh, which was once upon a time the commonly held view, but the opposite. Namely, the, the writers, the setting consists of oh-so-respectable, boring adherents of the established order, Republicans, right, uh, <laughs> the, the, the vill village scribes. So that's station three. 
So we go from the existence of the document to reconstructing it to ascribing to it its social location. That's step four. Now here's where Giovanni gets off the train, uh, the Q train, right? He's, he's on at the train at least through stop three. But there is stop four. Other scholars have gone further by positing a layered Q, distinguishing Q1 from Q2, or seeing different editorial layers within the document, for example, an apocalyptic Q or a wisdom Q. That for Giovanni is going too far. So Giovanni does not, does not do that. So Giovanni, please forgive me. You get off at the fourth stop. I get off at the third stop. And sometimes I think I get off at the second stop. So, um, but at least we need to articulate what our working, working, uh, working assumptions are. So Giovanni is convinced that the social setting of the Q document consists of village scribes. And we've heard of his eloquent presentation of his own uh, own uh, argument. We know that Judea, sorry, that Galilee had village scribes from one very pregnant passage in Josephus, which he treats at some, at some length. So we, therefore, we know that there were village scribes not just in Ptolemaic Egypt, but also in Herodian Galilee, which brings us very close to the period that we are particularly interested in. And that, that is a key point and a key passage, and Giovanni is absolutely right to, 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 uh, to hi highlight that. Giovanni then talks a great deal about these village scribes, what we know about them. Uh, in fact, his treatment, I believe, is the fullest available in English on village scribes, I think, anywhere. And that's, you know, just because he has all the data. Uh, did I say before, Giovanni is very learned? I've, I forgot to mention that. So you see that very clearly in his discussion. I liked very much his discussion of Romanization, of cultural resistance, of the knowledge of Greek. Uh, Giovanni is clearly making, making clear to us that we need to avoid simplistic categories. Are they pro-Greek, pro-Roman, pro-Jewish? I mean, these are idiotic, you know, simplistic categories, and we need to nuance all, all of these things. And Giovanni does that very well and very, 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 very skillfully. Um, I think that's all I'm going to say about the summary of the, uh, of, of the book. So I enjoyed the book a great deal, and I would just like to bring to Giovanni's attention and our own that sometimes rabbinic materials uh, can either shed light or problematize uh, texts that we otherwise see from the Greek tradition. So I'm, I'm not accusing or criticizing, heaven forbid, Giovanni for not knowing these things. One cannot know everything. Uh, and I like the fact that Giovanni is very modest in his claims, which I think is, is excellent. So here on your sheet, which you might now turn over, but which I foolishly forgot to keep one for myself. So. Uh, <laughs> I'll steal Giovanni's Thank you. Right. There we go. So here are simply uh, two texts, one of which I actually discussed with Giovanni last week, uh, and another one which I thought of subsequently, just indicating how uh, if we step outside the Greek tradition, of which Giovanni is a master, both the New Testament and Josephus and the uh, papyri and so on, and we turn and look at the Hebrew materials, where we can get a um, slightly different vantage point on things, and sometimes we're just not sure what to do with it. So here I'll, I'll just briefly look at these two, two sets of passages. So the first one is from the Mishnah tractate Ediot, uh, translated by me. So the prefect of the priests is given a series of, <coughs> making a series of testimonies of things that he remembers, or he testifies to what he saw or heard. This is one of the characteristics of tractate Ediot, consisting of such oral testimonies. Okay, that's all you need to know. So Presumably, oh, one more thing. Presumably, a figure who would claim to be testifying about what he saw, heard, from when the temple was still stood from before the year seventy. Anyway, 
testified also of a little village beside Jerusalem in which lived an old man who used to lend money to all the people of the village and write the promissory notes in his own hand, and others would sign as witnesses. And when the matter came before the sages, they declared it permissible. That's an extraordinarily intriguing little testimony. I have no idea whether this is true, it's not true, it's been corrupted, I know about all the usual. I'm, I'm just, just trying to imagine the, text, the world as imagined by this text. The same thing Giovanni's doing fundamentally with this text, trying to imagine, the, uh, try to re reconstruct the world as imagined by the text. So the problem in this little testimony is that a person is writing out an IOU to himself. Right. Now you would think this is obviously, he's giving, you're writing, he, you obviously think this is ripe for forgery, since I'm going to write a text that you owe me money. So we're not happy with that, right? We wish that wouldn't happen. We would like some third party to write an, out an IOU. So what, what rescues this man from the charge of forgery is that there are two witnesses. Right, two other non-related witnesses who sign on the promissory note, and therefore we're willing to overlook the fact that the lender, the creditor, has in fact written out the, the IOU himself. <coughs> we overlook that fact because we have two independent witnesses who, who sign. That's the legal issue at hand in this, in, this little, in this little paragraph. But I'm intrigued by this idea that here you have apparently a local wealthy person, perhaps a landowner, who's also functioning <coughs> as a scribe also functioning as a scribe. He is not a governmental agent. He's not a village scribe in Giovanni's sense of the word. That's precisely what makes it interesting. You probably also have a village scribe, but the village scribe clearly has no monopoly on scribal activities. Here we have someone else doing something very scribal. And not only just an average stray Joe Israelite, right, but presumably a local uh, nabob, right, a local pasha who maybe owns half of the, half of the village or owns the fields. Uh, around about, the man to reckon with in local village politics. So here we have, you know, we discover that village scribes are not the only ones who are wielding sort of political clout uh, on, on the village and, and especially in mon monetary matters. Now whether this is true, this is, the location is given to us amazingly enough beside Jerusalem, which is wonderful, uh, the stray piece of information that the Mishnah has. So you could argue, well, this is Judea, not Galilee, uh, you know, et cetera. You could do all the usual things. But however, it's, it's, a, it's a window into you know, realizing that even if we accept the village scribe uh, uh, thesis, nonetheless, there are other sources of power and influence in these little villages, right, and who nothing to do with the village scribes, even though they too are scribes. So that's just one little, one little very interesting little passage that you want. The next is I don't know how to solve it, so this is a problem, Giovanni, this is a text Giovanni and I discussed last week in my office, right, and I'll share it with you. So he's, uh, Giovanni has a very illuminating discussion of Q10.2, which those of you who are not learned in such things, <coughs> it means that we're following Q according to the numeration of Luke. So Q10.2 really means the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 2, except we think it comes from Q, this mysterious source that either did or did not uh, lie at the, com at the intersection of Matthew and Luke. So here's Giovanni's translation, and I... I only thought of this this afternoon, so I didn't have time to get the Greek in, in as well, so just forgive me. Anyway, the hour is late. The harvest, yeah, the hour is late. That fits in very nicely with the, with the <laughs> right, <laughs> Yes. So the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest to dispatch workers into his harvest. So Giovanni is interested here in this mysterious word to dispatch workers. What the hell is going on? The Greek verb is ekbalein. So the Lord of the Harvest seems to be the landowner or perhaps a kind of foreman, 
perhaps a harvest foreman, right, who needs to send out more crews out into the field to har harvest the, harvest the, uh, plant, the uh, grain, because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So then Giovanni goes on to explain, I think, in a very illuminating conversation, that village scribes typically were not in charge of uh, corvée or sending out platoons of workers. Rather, this was done by some other agent. And this, this hex makes us realize that, once again, village scribes don't have a monopoly on, on power or on uh, admi administration, that uh, you know, the, the situation is complicated, as I was saying just a moment ago. There are different layers of admi administration here. So a different version of that same passage in the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus said, the harvest is indeed great, but the laborers are few. That's virtually the same. But pray to the Lord to send laborers into the harvest. So that's similar. Then we have this passage from Rabbi Tarfa, which you know, Giovanni did not quote, uh, but that's OK. We, like, we respect Giovanni anyway. <laughs> Rabbi, 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 Tarfa, Rabbi Tarfon said, the day is short and the task is great. Laborers are idle and the wage is abundant, and the master of the house is urgent. This is the translation from uh, Herbert Danby, a translation that is still in print, and I'm desperately trying to replace it and in my own project. So I'm not sure what to make of this, and Giovanni and I, ha I, Giovanni and I had a wonderful conversation last week as we were playing around trying to figure out uh, it's obvious that there's some connection, I think, right? You agree? Yes. Thank you. Yes, we all agree. There's some connection. But what is the connection? So my current thinking is that the original, the heart of the proverb is some two-colon proverb, right? Something is short and something is great. And it's the, and it's the punch of the proverb is precisely in the contrast of, of the two. One of them is small, one of them is big, one is short, one is long, right, et cetera. So that would mean, and that's lastly in the Q version of the text, that's exactly what you have. The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. So if we take that, then perhaps that would suggest that the Rabbi Tarfon version in Avot is an elaboration. Right? Here I'm falling victim to the usual scholarly assumption that longer is later, but you know, and shorter is earlier. Uh, but hey, it seems to fit. Uh, the shorter seems to be uh, earlier, and longer seems, longer seems to be later. But at the end of the day, what makes the Rabbi Tarfon interesting is that in the Q passage, the Lord of the Harvest, even though the L is capitalized, the Lord of the Harvest is, I'm not sure that means God. Uh, I think Lord of the Harvest is just the harvest boss I saw in one English translation of this passage. Uh, though the, the, the worker boss, the boss of the uh, worker, the platoon of workers. So it's not God, it's just the foreman, the, the foreman. Uh, whereas in Rabbi Tarfon, it's very clear that we have transferred the, the parable to refer to God. So that the day is short, the task is great, the task meaning not the harvest literally, but the task of us who live here, we have our task of course is to do commandments and to act piously. The laborers are idle, laborers of course are us. We have so much to do, but we don't do it. But the wage is abundant if we were to do it, and the master of the house is urging us to do it. So Rabbi Tarfon has taken what I think looks like a plain or simple agricultural metaphor, right, and turned it into a, a real parable, right, a parable focusing on God and our obligations vis-a-vis -vis God, 
and it looks like this is a later version of what we just had. But I'm not sure. In any case, Giovanni, thank you very much. Thank you, Shaya. I'm happy to introduce now our second discussant for tonight, uh, Dr. Larry Wills, Lawrence Wills, um, who is no stranger to Harvard University. He did his uh, BA degree in Harvard College, his MTS and THD at Harvard Divinity School. So welcome back, welcome home to Harvard. And he didn't go very far. Um, he is professor at the um, Episcopal Divinity School, just about a mile from here across the Cambridge Common. Um, at uh, Episcopal Divinity School, he is the Ethelbert Talbert Professor of Biblical Studies. I should add also that before coming to EDS, he had taught previously at HDS and was the head of the language program, and also at Wesleyan University, and then came to EDS in 1994, where he teaches I'm sorry, Hebrew Bible and New Testament. In his teaching and research, he employs a number of interdisciplinary methods and explores the parallels and differences uh, between the issues of the biblical world and the world today. Uh, <clears throat> his most recent book uh, and noted book is Not God's People, Insiders and Outsiders in the Biblical World, and Jewish Novels of the Ancient World, which was named an outstanding academic book by Choice Magazine. His current research involves two different areas, religious identity among ancient Jews, Christians, and others, and also the social world of popular literary genres in Judaism and Christianity. And both of these areas inform his current book project, a commentary on the Book of Judith for the Hermonia series. So let us work, uh, welcome Dr. Larry Wills. Um, thank you for inviting me to uh, participate in this. I was very uh, honored and pleased to be able to, to say something about the book. Uh, I could sort of perhaps state from the beginning that I actually was convinced by the basic thesis of the book. So as we discuss it, there won't be any uh, uh, sort of apprehension of where I'm going to end up on these uh, uh, questions. I have a number of interesting questions about it, but I was essentially um, convinced by the thesis. Uh, I should mention that I saw your article on it before, and I thought, hmm, interesting, maybe. I want to follow this out a little bit. But when I got to the book and could read the uh, all the evidence that you provide, I'm essentially convinced. Um, even though there are some questions for clarification or discussion that I could suggest. Um, I should also mention that for this exercise, I did sort of a first reading of the book, and I came up with a list of issues that I wanted to talk about. Then I thought, okay, I'm going to look over part of it again. I was given the task of the second half, so I looked at the second half again and came up with an entirely different list. And I made the mistake of looking at it again and came up with yet a third list. So this may be the result of the, the third list, even though there are many directions that we could take this. Um, it's a very rich book. You mentioned this. It's easy to read, even though it is so rich. And if you're interested in the social world, political world that we have evidence for, uh, it, this is the, uh, a very good place to start. Um, the idea of... Uh, seeing the administrative role of these village scribes and the kinds of uh, inscriptions, or, or not inscriptions, the, pap the papyri of, of information going back and forth is, is really fascinating. Um, 
But it occurred to me also, I wanted to mention a couple of things, the way Shia also said a couple of things about Q. Uh, I should mention, by the way, that I've totally surrendered to the Q thesis. And in terms of going down the, 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 the station stops, I'm not sure which stop I'm at, but I'm pretty far down the track on, on, uh, on these issues. So I'm uh, totally surrendered there. Um, but just to mention a few things to sort of orient people a bit. Uh, in English translations, it's about 5,000 words. So that's about 12 to 15 pages of a of book text to give you an idea about how much scholars suggest has been reconstructed. And an interesting question is, why are there such debates? Because the passages, as you well know if you've looked at it or thought about this, are, seem fairly clear on the surface. Uh, it's interesting if you were to compare Gospel of Thomas, which is similar, Gospel of Thomas, in every case, often goes to either a mystifying or a mystical or a, uh, an intentionally obscure sort of note. But if you go back to Q again, it's not trying to make it obscure in that way, but why are there still um, such debates among scholars on this issue? And my sense is that Q research has produced a number of compelling and well-argued books, uh, but it turns into sort of an argument loop and this is true for a lot of scholarly areas, but when we don't have new data, we have an argument loop that goes round and round. Uh, Will Arnell and uh, John Kloppenborg wrote very good books on the notion of village scribes as the context and what you might call the mid-level administrators. Uh, Melody Johnson DeBoef of Harvard, got her doctorate here at Harvard and Sarah Rollins have uh, produced studies of the rhetorical strategies in Q. Uh, there's a strong political reading of Q that Shia mentioned by people like Richard Horsley or John Dominic Crossan that would see it as much more clearly and explicitly uh, on the side of the poor or a, a, a radical critique of Roman society. And um, I would emphasize there that they would argue that it's clear and explicit. And I, in talking with Giovanni and, and, and our, over the years too, I think he and I would both say it's not so clear and not so explicit, but in contrast to your characterization, uh, I'm not sure it's the Republicans of the ancient world either. And, I, and in fact, this is one of the things I would press Giovanni on this question. Uh, is that um, administrators who are involved in a negotiation of this community of people who are going to be, uh, can be part of the kingdom of God uh, despite the fact that they're from an administrative class, you might assume that they are sort of taking on the position of the hierarchical, the downward administration from God. But it, what you're sort of getting at is if you look at the way it's constructed, it's a bit more complex and challenging. And that's actually one of the things I would press you on to try to, actually everyone who reads the book is going to want to know that. I'll put it that way, uh, and I would as well. Um, but this, this argument loop, uh, luckily, uh, Giovanni has produced this evidence that might jump, we could take into that argument loop um, as actual new data. Um, and the only, the, but there are a couple of methodological questions which Giovanni is absolutely honest about. One of them is we have to allow this evidence from Egypt. Uh, and, uh, Egypt and Galilee are about 350 miles apart by land, less by sea. Uh, so it's about like Boston to Syracuse, New York. Uh, can we take evidence in the ancient world that far without 
challenging it, and, and he's honest about this issue. Um, one could also argue that because one of them was in the old Ptolemaic administration and one of them in the old Seleucid administration, they're from two different administrations, historically. I would say that's a, then that's like Boston to Ottawa, Canada, uh, across the border. Um, but as, as I see it as an issue, I don't, I don't personally don't see it as disqualifying the evidence. So there are two things that he wants to, to argue, really, that there's the old king and royal patronage symbolic universe of the Hellenistic empires. But in the Roman administration, that's disrupted, and you have the talk, the old talk and the new talk about kingship, kingdom, basileia, rule, and that's a very moral topic in the ancient world. But you don't really honor the kings anymore. So for this, this group, is it uh, the kingdom of God? And even though the king is available in terms of God as the, as the metaphor, but they talk about it as if it's an administration, and they are the administrators. That's, the, that's what he, enters into, he introduces into this. A couple of other interesting challenges and problems. Uh, the word scribe or grammatos in, it does not appear in Q. Uh, it's in Mark and often in Matthew. So if scribes are the group we're talking about, it's interesting that the word scribe does not appear. But it's also interesting, a, uh, a point for further clarification. Um, there are so few scriptural passages in Q or allusions, even though Mark has many. Um, so what is the nature of these scribes? Because we are used to thinking of scribes as the scribes in Jewish law. So do we have to just simply adjust our definition um, or answer the question, why does Q have so few scriptural quotations or allusions, even though covenant is assumed, 12 tribes are talked about, etc. So Q actually has the language of administration and hierarchy and, and all kinds of interesting things. And you drew my attention to those, which I had not seen before. And um, as I say, that's the part of the thesis that I was convinced by. But now um, another part of it I want to go to a, 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 a sort of a different issue of what you might call the, the dynamic of Q with its audience. The premise is this. The scribes in about the year 60 are writing a text that affirms the role of disciples in the text. So disciples in the year 30. Text, scribes in 60 writing a text about disciples in the year 30. And are they somehow sort of identified in this process? And further, what is the audience um, then? Uh, if the disciples judge over the 12 tribes of Israel, and judge here is probably a positive word, uh, judge in the sense of the judges in the Bible. If the disciples judge over the 12 tribes of Israel, are the audience the 12 tribes to be judged over? Or the audience also uh, sort of in this uh, miraculous end time, uh, by a reversal, they are also judges. So some interesting questions about the dynamic of Q with its audience. Um, 
A couple of other issues that if we have time to get around to, I could uh, hold in abeyance, but I also thought I would like to have just several suggestions of topics that um, I hope we'll have some time to discuss here and get Giovanni's uh, uh, take on these as well. So, so pushing him a little bit outside of what he actually said in the book to what he might think about some of these other issues. He mentioned some of the methodological problems. Two he mentioned and one he, he did not. The first one I noted, why is the word scribe not used in Q? Another methodological issue, can one extrapolate from Egypt to Galilee? He mentions those. But another question I would push him on, what does it mean for Q if these papyri in Egypt really only illuminate a few phrases? So these are pretty important phrases, pretty important verses in Q. But a lot of Q is just regular Greek of the day. So does, do the papyri in Egypt illuminate everything, or do they just illuminate a, a few passages? Um, then I mentioned the, the problem of why does Q not quote or allude to scripture more? When we say scribe in the Gospels, we usually assume a scribe of Jewish law. So at the risk of sounding as if I'm distinguishing a secular and religious sort of scribe, were there more administrative scribes and more religious sort of scribes in Galilee? As I say, I know the dangers of that secular religious distinction, and in fact, the administrative texts are very religious, but is there an administrative kind of scribe and a Jewish religion-oriented kind of scribe as well? Um, does Q reflect the worldview of administrative scribes, but not of scribes of Jewish law? Is that why the word scribe doesn't appear in there? To add another uh, mystery that, that Giovanni can tackle, scholars really don't know, as far as I've been able to tell, and I've really tried to track this down, scholars do not know why Jesus would be depicted as a friend of toll collectors or tax collectors. Why is that such a strong theme? Tax collectors sometimes occasionally negative, but usually positive, and, one, and Jesus is friends. In Q, Mark, elsewhere. Is there some hidden analogy between village scribes, who aren't mentioned in Q, and toll collectors, who actually are? So is that, that can we get any insights into the toll collector problem or the tax collector problem? Um, I mean, toll collectors could have been administrative scribes, although we usually think of them as taking from people rather than benevolently distributing to people. So that's a, a challenge there. And does Q assume a didactic program the way Matthew does? If you're not familiar with Matthew on this point, Matthew from beginning to end changes Mark and Q, I'm convinced, uh, to create didactically shaped discourses and narratives, uh, and it focuses on inner dispositions to make sure that you not only are doing the right thing, but you're thinking the right way, and you're doing it the right way, and you're doing it even in private. Does Q have any didactic program that might be analogous to Matthew's program? Um, also, to go back to the question of the, the ultimate effect of the discourse in terms of the political class. 
Uh, am I wrong in assuming I th that, that Giovanni, I, th I think we're sort of in agreement on this, but I check this, that the that Q does push toward a sort of a negotiation of class in, the, in this context in which they are the administrators, but it's an administrating of a, an alternative community is the way I would see it, sort of um, trying to kick into high gear the notion of a community that will seek some sort of distribution network that has as the model the distribution of goods in Egypt, or, or it's, it's analogous to the distribution of goods in Egypt. Uh, I use the term a mutual support network in my classes in trying to think about this issue. When you say, uh, blessed are those who hunger now for they shall be fed, one of the implications may be, yeah, by the other people there. Not, God's not going to be delivering manna, uh, but, but there will be a distribution. Uh, another interesting, one of my perennial questions that occurred to me in reading this book, the world of patronage is assumed in the book and is spelled out very well here. It's, if you were interested in that topic for this period, this is one of the places that I would go. But because the word, in patronage, you have a patron who, and clients below, but in the ancient world, the brokers are the the middle operators between the patron and the client. But interestingly, the word broker is uh, rarely encountered in the New Testament. And I'm not a papyrologist, but I don't think it's that common in, in the papyri either. Uh, messy taste is one form. There may be other words for it. Um, so scholars think that the broker is crucial in these operations, and yet we don't see it much in the um, in the text, um, but what you're describing is a situation of brokers. Um, actually, I realize now that I, I need to draw my conclusion, my comments to a close as well. Um, but I would just, I'll stop with that question about the, the brokers, because if the disciples are to judge the 12 tribes of Israel, does that mean that the, the, audiences are, the audience are members of the tribes, but the disciples are then the brokers? And, and once again, why is that word almost never used? So I'll stop with those queries. Thank you, Larry. Very interesting. Two wonderful dis responses we've had. And before opening up for discussion, we'll give Giovanni a few moments to um, take on his friendly discussants. A uh, few moments means that I won't be able to answer all the questions, yeah. No, I don't want to remain on the train and <laughs> get lost. <laughs> go, not get down at the stop I want to get. I don't want to go in the fourth. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to get into the fourth stop. Um, okay, so I'll answer only a few of, of these of this things. So I'll answer. I'll, I'll, I'll say what I think about only a few of these great um, observations and Thanks both of you for this. It's um, um, can I can I quibble on the Q thing because I think there is a difference with the nineteenth century uh, Genesis uh, uh, discussion around the sources there, um, I, and I think this is there and and this is why I would never do this for 
something that in New Testament people do, like the sources of the Gospel of John or the sources of Mark. Um, I, I, I think one can do all the Q, because for Q there are two texts that are independent. While the, the thing in Genesis is different in the sense that there, there is a single text, and, and then one has to come up with reasons to distinguish the various sources to begin with, and, and that falls immediately into circular reasoning. Um, so I, I do still, I would say, I, I, I see a difference which to me is important methodologically for, for Q and still. Uh, but, you know, it, it's good that there's a lot of dissents, dissent on this. Um, but but I, wanted, I, I, just, I just wanted to say a thing about the first, uh, the first rabbinic, the first, the first text in the handout. So you, you can actually look back at it for, for a second now. Um, it's, uh, this is great, and, and I think, and I think I totally agree with you, it's, uh, I, I, I want to say that uh, the designation it's village, it's village scribes, um, it can be misleading, and, and I've struggled a little bit in, in writing the book about deciding whether I wanted to keep it, because it's been used by uh, Kloppenburger, Arnal, and, and others too, um, but in, in a sense it is misleading, because, um, because in the, the Egyptian sources, we do have Como Grammateus, the v literally the village scribe, as a um, designation specifically for a certain office, um, w which is mostly someone that has to you know, assess taxes, uh, what, what people have to pay on their yearly harvest. Um, I, 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 I have a broader view of this. I do think that when, when I say Q is composed by village scribe, I, I think more about whoever in a small village had some kind of ability to write. Um, so that, and that came with a lot of social baggage, meaning, you know, meaning the time to actually learn about that and so the money to you know, support himself or maybe herself in, in, in the process of learning this. Uh, the skill. Uh, so, so I would say I, I wouldn't be against saying that the the man, the old man here, um, you know, I could, could could go into the category of village scribe, understood it as broader, not as just the person who has a specific task in the administration, because you know, also, I think that the Josephus passage um, uh, is not thinking about village scribes in the sense of the Egyptian particular designation, but is thinking about village scribes in this sense. You know, this kind of um, uh, proletarians of the intellect, intellectual proletarians that actually Josephus, no, it's not Josephus speaking in his voice, but you know, the sons, the sons, the two sons of Europe considering this to be, you know, really the, the lowest possible, you know. So, um, so in that sense, in, in that sense, this is, this is, this is perfect and I, and it, it would work perfectly. Um, as, as for, as for the answer to, to Larry, okay, I'm gonna choose a couple of them. Um, the easiest for me, um, <laughs> obviously. Uh, <laughs> so, so one point. Well, no, just one point about the the methodo the the, pro the complex uh, methodological um, um, question of using Egyptian materials to uh, to 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 imagine uh, what could have happened in Galilee. Um, I, I think that that's 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 a move that you know it's, it is controversial. 
because a long-standing uh, tradition of scholarship in uh, uh, in classics, in papyrology itself, um, no, not in papyrology itself, but in classics and in ancient history, has been to not to use anything that was e Egyptian uh, for the rest of the Mediterranean, of the ancient Mediterranean, because there was the assumption, the, the assumption that Egypt was completely exceptional um, under all respects. So, so it, it's not clear how much that was a, a way for historians not to actually have to study papyrology, which is the what, what the papyrologists say, uh, <laughs> or it was actually a, a, a well-grounded, um, methodologically well-grounded idea. I, I think that this is recent discoveries, among them those, you know, in, uh, um, if, for instance, not of, the, not of the Qumran scrolls, but the other uh, documentary texts that have been discovered around the Dead Sea, uh, but not only there, you know, there's also stuff that's been discovered in Mesopotamia or Dura Europus and, and that. So these discoveries of papyri outside Egypt give a great sense of the fact that the writing practice, pra the, 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 the writing formulae and, and particularly the administrative formulae was re were really, and also the administrative structures were really very similar. Um, be, be between Egypt and other places, obviously with distinctions. So this is not to say that one has just to transfer stuff from Egypt directly into Galilee or whatever. Um, but but I think there is a there is some this is something that's really changing in scholarship uh, about this significantly, and because of recent discoveries and publications of documents. Um, just two other. Can say two things. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, um, just two things. Uh, the first one about the, I'm a little resistant about the distinction between secular and religious scribes, though I see your point that, um, uh, that there is um, a lack of explicit references to, uh, to the scriptures in, um, in, in, a, in a text like yours for us, we can reconstruct it. Obviously there are, you know, I, I could cheat a little bit and say, you know, but there is the temptation of Jesus where, you know, Jesus, you know the story, Jesus censors uh, to the devil with, with a series of quotations. But, you know, this would be cheating because really there's not much, even in such a short document. And, and that I could cheat also a little bit about the grammateus, the mention of scribes, because, you know, if one considers be part of Q, you know, the conversation between Jesus and the scribe about what, what is the greatest commandment, which some people think has, is a, could be a Q version. Yeah, so, but this would be cheating. So I, I, <laughs> I want to be earnest about this, particularly for the quotation. I, I see that. I still think that this text is steeped in, in this knowledge of Jewish traditions. And, and, and I don't want to, you know, one risk that has been very clear in Q scholarship uh, and some, some authors have pushed to say, uh, no, um, uh, this is, Q would represent the non-religious uh, Jesus tradition. Um, and um, and that, that, you know, immediately becomes the non-Jewish uh, Jesus tradition. And so I, I don't, I, I think that's, that's, that's really not a good way to go. And, and, and I would say, you know, obviously this, is, this text seems to come from a category of scribes who are trading more in administrative writing than in, in, in copying um, uh, biblical texts or even no pseudepigraphical or no uh, texts. 
but but still they have a knowledge of these traditions that, that transpires. So, you know, like like for, for instance the text you were mentioning at the end, which supposedly is the ending of Q, we really don't know. This is in Luke 22, where you know those the judging of the 12 tribes of Israel. So this is this is a pretty um, te a text that is, you know there's no quotation in there, but but it's clearly not understandable without the, the background of uh, these Jewish traditions. And so this, the mention of this for, for the very last thing, it's, uh, it's what I, I think uh, I, I would agree completely with you in saying that there is the, 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 uh, the agenda that a text like you seems to be pushing is that, uh, as, as you were saying perfectly, that this, that, that the authors, if the authors are really these village scribes, they read themselves into the disciples. And you know, for instance, in the parables in Q, they read themselves into the slaves that, that deal with the master. So that, that's an interesting quirk uh, because most of the parables are about slaves and masters, um, uh, those the Q parables. Um, but they see themselves as, as being these brokers, yes. And, and that's you know, very clear in Q22, the, the passage about judging. Uh, judging in a good sense, like you said, I, yeah. So, so it's not judging, condemn, actual condemning, but it's judging in the sense of governing. Um, with you know, condemning someone if someone has been bad, but you know, generally speaking, not. Um, I, and I and, and you know, I've, I want to finish with this. You know, this is yes, this is pushing this agenda of with seeing them as brokers, but the, yeah, with the. Um, with, with, the with, with the attempt to imagine this kingdom as something that is brought about by human intervention, or, or at least by human collaboration. Um, because there is also the notion that the Basileia acts itself is an abstract that, that acts, but in, in many cases are actually human. So this is kind of very clear in the, in the Lord's Prayer, where uh, you know that there is this request for depth, relief, uh, and 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 then there, the, what is probably the Q version of this request, actually puts the intervention, the, the human initiative before God's uh, remish, remittance. Um, so there, it seems you know, I, I would say this is I totally agree with that. It seems to be an advancing the idea of a community, uh, of a human action that brings about uh, the. The Basileia of God, that then is the more than a Basileia belonging to God, is the Basileia, the divine Basileia. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm done. I just have a question that follows up with what, the last point you were saying about these larger implications about the nature of agency and the nature of human communities uh, and relationship to God and so on. And this may well be an unfair question, but I'm just wondering, I'm just curious, is that point, because that's a very deep, it's a metaphysical, it has metaphysical theological implications, obviously, is that, is that picked up? Do, can we track that point coming from there in later people outside your period? But, uh, is, does that, is, are these ideas identifiable? I mean, can you sort of suggest that actually that particular strand of 
conceptualizing God and the human community is then picked up by other Christian theologians and so on, and, and philosophers down to the present day. No, that's not too much. Teach me a right? Get me the the rock of all the stories. So this is just a very you can answer quickly. So I'm just curious. No, no, I I I I I think you can, and you know, in my little. I think there is a strong resistance to that. So as soon as you, as soon as one traces, if you accept the Q idea, as soon as one traces the incarnation of Q in uh, Matthew and Luke, one can already see very clearly that there is indirect reduction of rewriting. There is already uh, a significant act of taking the distance away. For instance, Matthew. Um, makes explicit that you know all the masters in the parables are God. Um, so, so in, in the sense of you know putting or, or are kings which so, so kind of reaffirming that God is king so don't, don't be mistaken on that point or you know for the look and for the very you know request for depth relief that I was mentioning you know, as soon as it goes into Matthew um, there you know, the very notion that the human initiative precedes or kind of compels God's initiative is immediately taken out. And so there is a resist, so there is definitely a move away from that because of the theological problems. It is a, and, and, I, and I think I agree, you can trace this. Now I don't wanna you know, fall into a gambit's trap, but I, I think one could, could imagine tracing this beyond this stage, you know, the first century, see whenever this New Testament text were composed, uh, into a later period, and actually see the struggle between these two tendencies all over. And so much so that the King the Basileia, the Kingdom of God, it is this contested and negotiating notion that is, you know, it's obviously inherently autocratic because it's a kingdom, but at the same time has this space for, you know, some kind of human participation, which makes it kind of I should also add that on any question, either of you can jump in too. David? I just want to oh, okay. want to jump in on one point here that might be helpful, ironically, to answer your question, and that is to go back in time before. You have a great section on this Jewish author Aristeas, and if you're not familiar with Aristeas, it really is a wonderful treatise on kingship, understood as how God rules the world and how the morality of kingship as well. So if you think about that behind you. And then Q is a, almost a development yeah. of Aristeas. It, it helps with the, pushing the question forward and, and uh, makes it much richer, I think. Please, yes, David. Yeah, what uh, shine, I'm also not a uh, New Testament scholar. I haven't read your book. Um, but I just wanted a, a comment about this scribal question. Um, even in the uh, passage from the Hebrew yoke that uh, Shia brought, um, there's a clear distinction between these this old guy, this would-be scribe, or the self-taught scribe, and the sages. Yeah. And the sages, I think, are much closer to those figures, the scribes of the law, that uh, that are referred to in you know in the Gospels. Um, uh, I don't like the secular religious distinction between the two, but I think the administrative scribe uh, is a very helpful term, as opposed to these. Uh, 
people who are in fact scribes, and, but in a different sense, interventionist composers of the law, transmitters of the law, who really don't want to see themselves as scribes. I mean, it's like professors now want to see themselves as teachers. Mm -hmm. um, they don't want to see themselves that way. Um, and, you know, and, and if something like Seth Schwartz is right, that there was this collapse, I mean, he's talking about after the destruction of Jewish law, and there is really this widespread, you know, people, it's just Roman law, basically. These types of administrative scribes would have held a very important position. And I find it very plausible what you're arguing that, uh, or what I take your argument in the book, because I haven't read it, I just heard you tonight, that Q might be a product of this group of scribes. Um, in a way, it reminds me of Jonathan Smith's argument about apocalyptic. Yeah. That, you know, it's also a sort of scribal revenge. Yeah, this, this, this so, main point is being a source of inspiration. Right. So, so, so that's, that's I, I find that quite uh, yeah, well, I just, just you know, I completely agree, and I, I'm just saying that if one looks into the Egyptian materials, you know, and as much as that can be helpful to imagine the situation, I mean, there there is clearly a distinction here because there are these village scribes who trade in, in scribal activities that have to do with the administration, um, and there are the scribes in the temples who are copying the Egyptian traditional texts of the, of the Egyptian religion. So, and there are overlaps sometimes. So the record allows us to see that sometimes there is the guy who does both things. But you know, in generally speaking, these are two different uh, groups. Like I said, you know, the secular religious distinction though, it's tricky. Yeah. By the way, I'll, I'll introduce that as a devil's advocate position. I agree with that, it's a, it's, <laughs> no. it's a problem. But administrative versus sort of kind of Jewish scribe distinction to me. Uh, but they're all Jews. They're all Jews. Well, I mean, I mean, scribe, scribes of religious. I mean, if you look at what Mark says about scribes, they're they're not just uh, keeping tabs of village. No, yeah. Things. Mark sees scribes as something different from administrative scribes. Yeah, I would say that maybe there is the professor who wants mm -hmm. to actually represent himself as a professor, no, not as yeah. a. Um, since we're on the topic of scribes, I was wondering if you could flesh out for us a little bit more, okay, no religious secular distinction, but what additional evidence do we have about the religious lives of administrative scribes? And why would these scribes have been attracted to the Jesus movement in particular? So sort of flesh out that historical context. Okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well they are, I mean, I, obviously we don't have much from Galilee, so the, 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 the reason, the whatever imagination we, we might have has to come from the Egyptian uh, scenery. And so like I said, there are, Egypt, because it's such a, such a plentiful record, allows us sometimes even to look into, you know, the, 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 a, a great feature of the popularological record is that sometimes um, the kind of vagaries of the preservation as preserved in what is usually called an archive, meaning a, a group of, uh, of papyri written by a, a, a specific person or maybe a family or, or, a, or a group, like even a professional group, like a, um, an office or a village scribe sometimes. So this, this, is, this is great because, you know, kind of instead of having single pieces that are generally unrelated, allows one to actually see 
maybe a little peek into the cultural and, and intellectual interests of a, of a specific person. Sometimes you have these cases, like I was saying, of overlap where, where, where people, and, and this allows to see not just religious interests, but you know, scribes have other types of texts that are not necessarily only the accounts of taxes that are due or stuff like that, but they have, um, you know, a piece of Homer or or a, or a novel or or you know a a piece of a comedy of Menanders stuff like so. So in 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 many cases, are literary texts of the Greek tradition, but it can also be texts, religious texts of the Egyptian tradition. So I mean, I, it wouldn't be surprising to imagine, while the two categories I think remain distinct, I wouldn't be surprised that you know if he had the, the Galilean. Um, record as plentiful as in Egypt to to have the occasional scribe who might have biblical texts um, in Hebrew or Aramaic in together with his uh, tax rolls and, and stuff like that. Is that what you were asking? Or and why why the Jesus movement in particular? Oh, okay. and what can we do about, <laughs> no. around that? Which I know is you know. Well, that's that, awesome. that's interesting. That, that's interesting because I don't have a good comparandum there. I don't. Have, I wish I had an Egyptian scribe who was writing a text about an Egyptian prophet going around in the Fayum and <laughs> <laughs> the end of the world. Uh, so, so, but, but, but the thing that I can say is that you know sometimes. Our imagination of this village scribe is kind of, from, from the point of view of actual production of literature, is kind of minimalistic, because we imagine they are just copying stuff. They're not very, uh, they're not actually acting, acting literally. Um, and I, I, there, again, the record shows that there's a, there is a production. It's usually a production of simple literature. Obviously, it's not that they write you know, uh, poems in examiners or stuff like that. or so there's no, not a good describe that you know on the side writes uh, Apollonius Rodius or something like that, but but there is, but there are, but these scribes can you know put together you know what you have are you know sometimes nomic collections, sapiential texts, uh, but even apocalyptic texts like you know the Oracle of the Potter. So I think that that may give at least a hint how. Uh, a text like Q, which is about this Jesus of Nazareth and his prophetic activity, uh, might have come to be in these circles. Yes, please. Um, I had a question for Professor Cohen. I had just the opposite reaction from yours of which of these came earlier, and I, I'm just a pure amateur. I went to school here 50 years ago in Liverpool, Iowa, so I'm in Thomas, the word indeed struck me. You, we generally say indeed when we're referring to something that is earlier. So, uh, you, for example, uh, you've heard we had a good harvest this year. Well, we indeed did because the statistics show it's the biggest one in 50 years. In other words, it refers back something earlier. And then the second point that struck me on that is this seems entirely in line with what uh, I see Jesus of Nazareth as doing, taking an existing 
earthy farming image and applying it to the kingdom of heaven. Um, and then my third reaction is sometimes political movements go from the complex to the oversimplified, as we're seeing in a certain Republican candidate. <laughs> uh, and this is a simple saying from other data. And then, uh, if you'll allow me, and forgive me for this, as the chair of the, this Ward 7 Republican Committee, I'd like to tell you that I'm thrilled that I can go back and tell our little group that meets in a closet where Kasich, not Trump, that we republic, not just the poor will always be with you in the Bible, but even the Republicans. <laughs> 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 I didn't want to do all these American politics. It's boring to me. Are you a citizen? No. That's, uh, yeah. Yes. So anyway, it's nice to meet a rare bird. <laughs> we, we usually hide. What is that? But I'm sure there aren't very many of you, so it's nice, nice to meet one. So um, I'm not sure that had disentangled relationship of these three texts, of these three texts: the Gospel of Thomas, the cube, if it is indeed cube, and the passage of Rabbi Tarfon in Chaklina book. It doesn't look like to me that here this was an example of the shorter becoming longer. Right? That, that's what it looked like. And it's, it's rare where you can sort of see that, especially in Tractate of So that, that was just an observation. Do with it what you will. As far as Indeed goes, uh, I don't know Coptic, so I can't deal with the Coptic underlying the Gospel of Thomas. But uh, the English translation gives you the helpful uh, the words that the word, which appear in Greek in Coptic. So the translation of Indeed, followed by but, is a fair translation of men and death. Uh, so I, I wouldn't push indeed very hard. As it's simply the way Greek's sentence structure is we're indicating on the one hand, on the other hand, or there's this and then there's that. You know, it's, it's meant to be coordinated in parallel clauses. So I wouldn't push too much weight on indeed. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Thank, thank you for your thoughts. Yeah, I have a question about the tension between those scholars who would ascribe a more revolutionary agenda to Q and your bureaucratic interpretation. And observing revolutionary movements in the modern world, one often sees adherents who are traitors to their class. Um, Karl Marx was not a member of the Marxist proletariat. So is, you know, when you look at these village scribes, is, is your implicit theory that they were drawn to the Jesus movement out of some disloyalty to aspects of their scribal role, or because, because it was consistent right. with their scribal, scribal role. They were pushing a class consciousness thing that I don't know if applies to, to the ancient world, but let's, let's know that the, to me, the, where I am unsatisfied with, uh, uh, with the usual reading with a kind of egalitarian, or democratic reading of, um, of, of these texts. We didn't, some people like Crossan or Horsley has been men, has been, who have been mentioned already, is that the very nature of the message in a text like Q um, is supposed to appeal to popular, to the peasants, usually what the, the word that is usually thrown around is the peasants. 
And uh, though there is a problem there because the kind of moral um, moral path this proposal, the didactic path this proposes, is one one struggles to see it appealing to this because you know it is fundamentally you know classic text for this is the famous text about the lilies and the ravens you know they don so and you know um, my father has been a farmer uh, usually hard to commend this text and he would say yeah you look at the lilies and the ravens and they don't sow they don't harvest and they die in the winter. So, <laughs> <laughs> that ruins it. That, 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 that ruins, ruins the, the, the saying, but but you know it's kind of an ecastic way to to the uh, anecdotal, but interesting to see how that is. It, it, I struggle to see that as being the kind of message that goes through to the lower, the very low, uh, the, the lowest classes. You know, the proletariat. Because, because it, it, it implies for them to kind of giving away uh, something they're sh the, the little thing they are sure about for for and so so actually I I, I have a lesser less trouble seeing this for a class like the village administrators in, in certainly in a kind of transgressive as taking up a transgressive ethos uh, but it seems to me more more. Yeah, I think the lilies in the field, it is. it does, to my sensibility, fit with the person of a different class who's right. perhaps somewhat awkwardly trying to be in solidarity yeah, exactly. with that very yeah. <laughs> In a way, just, it, yeah, that, that is a problem passage for this, but the Beatitudes that you, you know, blessed are you who are destitute. It actually isn't poor, it's you who are destitute. Um, and it's interesting, blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be fed. So it's but this is the, the, the sayings on the other side. In other words, we have sayings on one side that would make it look as if it's sort of a spiritual transcendent thing with this politically neutral. And the other, the other side, you find phrases that seem... No, but I don't think that I was pushing for the politically neutral. I mean, the, the, the thing of the person who transgresses the class mm -hmm. location right. might not but, necessarily be a spiritualization, right? I mean, in, a, in one sense, this also poses the question of the failure of Q. As if, if we read this in these terms, you know, like, that there is a failure there. It didn't really work uh, in, in terms of the. So, what, what precisely didn't work? Oh, I'm sorry, what do you mean? What, what precisely didn't the, work? The, the, the kind of social. Message oh, I see. Social, yeah. oh. But even the text didn't survive. <laughs> <laughs> if it ever existed, it didn't survive. Yeah. <laughs> I have two, two questions about the, and I, I should say I haven't had a chance to get my hands on the book yet, so I, I look forward to reading it. Um, I have two different questions about this uh, village scribe group culture that you imagine this um, cue arising in. Uh, one kind of on the front end of this text and one on the, on the, on the back end, if you will. Um, I guess the way to put it, I mean, if, if, if you, as you were saying earlier, if you have this kind of expansive notion of village scribes that aren't just the people who are officially charged in the administration to do this thing, but you, you said that this 
example from the Mishnah, could, you know, this old man who can ride out on the edges of Jerusalem could be a bill described in your, in your sense. If that's the case, who in the Galilee who has the means and education to write would not be a village scribe? Or are you simply saying that this group who wrote Q are precisely the same as the people in the Galilee who had the means and education to write in, in the Galilee at that time? Um, so that's, that's one question. Uh, I'm just distinguishing those two groups. The second is, how different is the social location, in your opinion, of Matthew and Luke? Because um, I guess what I'm wondering is to go back to Professor, some of Professor Cohen's reservations about how far down this train you go. Uh, is it possible, I guess what I'm wondering is how, how much is your analysis here dependent upon the existence of this text cue? Uh, or how much could it be some sort of epiphenomenon of these of these two different um, texts, Matthew and Luke, in some sort of shared culture? Does that does that question make sense? Well, it's the last part. Of okay, maybe yeah, maybe maybe. <laughs> but I'm maybe okay too, with too complicated. The, the the question is simply how different are Matthew and Luke those social locations from Q? Because then we get a sense of how much your social world you build depends upon Q as such. Okay, so. First question, I, I don't think it's coterminous. Village scribe is not coterminous with everyone who knows uh, what's the skill of writing, of writing in Galilee, because there is the village part. So there is the location in villages over against the cities. So uh, okay. uh, I would say urbanites, and particularly the elite. So that's why in the book I tend to call this subelite, because they are they are associated with the elite by the skill they have. But on the other hand, um, the elites have a different social power, a different social location in, in the city centers. So I, I, I think that there, there is a significant distinction to be made. Um, uh, that's, why, that's also reflected in Josephus' passages once, mm -hmm. once more, because mm -hmm. you know, there you have the sons of Hero to the go look, these village scribes are really and they are, these are people who are, you know, literate as, as they are, but, but they are not really our same group. Um, so this is the first. Uh, the second, um, I do see now Matthew is more, of, uh, on Matthew I'm, I'm, I'm less sure, but clearly look, that represents the urban uh, scenario much more. And, and so there are interesting phenomena when, when you look at how, you know, if you admit that Q ever existed, when you look at how Q is transformed into Q, rewritten re by look, uh, it's uh, clearly there you see the move away from um, the village to the, to the urban context. And, and there, a lot of the changes that look makes make sense make a lot of sense and, and, and clearly insert a completely different outlook, which, you know, if you read Luke, is much more expensive. You know, if you put Acts into is you know, is the entire Mediterranean, is the empire, as, as a completely different, for instance, you know, horizon of expectation with respect to Q, and uh, not just geographical or spatial, but, you know, also looking at the uh, kind of ethos that is proposed. For instance, Luke has a great project, you know, so if we go back to the um, to the social message of, 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 of Q, 
Luke has a message that is basically you should give Al, uh, um, no, not almonds. What do you say? Alms giving. You should, you should, you should do alms making. Alms giving, because that's what a, a good Christ follower does. That's not, not in the horizon of Q. So I think, unfortunately, we've reached the point where our formal discussion has to end. I'd invite people to stay around, talk to our speakers, talk to Giovanni about the book, autograph your personal copies, and so forth. But let us end the formal session by thanking them for a wonderful instruction.